Welcome to Chat to You. I'm your host, Eric Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tattoo You. You could be for university, it might be for underground, that's up to you. Today's guest is Clayton Patterson here on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. You got me a bit confused here. Tattoo You. I thought that was a ukulele. It could be ukulele. It could be ukulele. Some people have ukulele tattoos. Okay. Yes. Ukulele. <laughs> All right, so this should be interesting. Let's uh, find out what you want to know. Clayton Patterson, you are an interesting individual. I want to pick your brain today uh, a little bit about, uh, you know, you're, you're, you were the president of the Tattoo Society from 1986 to what year? Uh, Tattoo Society of New York, and yes. it was uh, 1986 until legalization. Really, I'm still the president of Tattoo Society, but the Tattoo Society essentially kind of... Um, Went defunct in, after 97 when tattooing became illegal, when it became legal again. And that was uh, with the push of you and Wes Wood, correct? Uh, three of us, actually. Uh, Wes Wood, uh, myself, and Catherine Fried, our city council uh, person. And we had a, a couple other people, like Darren Rosa was involved, uh, Tom Murphy, from, uh, and a woman called Maya, a tattoo artist called Maya. But Wes, I, and Catherine Fried sort of spearheaded the whole thing. So. Wes helped me out a lot with uh, my tattoo career. Definitely. Well, one of the problems with New York is, is that it's so underground that a lot of people don't really know the history at all, and it's kind of really getting obliterated. But Wes was ex really critically important to so many people, and Wes has invented a lot of things that people don't really realize. Everybody now uses sterilized needles and sterilized uh, tubes and things which they buy. The one that put that whole thing in that process into motion was Wes. He spent a lot of money getting the specialized, uh, uh, you know, uh, those bags uh, you know, printed and, and produced and like that. So they had to, um, you know, really um, make those right from scratch. So he's made just a tremendous number of contributions. Uh, Wes knows a lot about tattooing. He knows the whole makeup of inks. He's very up on the technical part. Wes is a very sort of smart, technical, and um, very efficient kind of person. And, um, and a very good friend. And, uh, you know, I definitely support Wes, and he's helped so many people. And yeah. You've made a lot of contributions. Also, Clay, let's, uh, let's go to, let's talk about some of your work. And uh, you actually helped some of the Flash get into uh, a Cape Fear movie with Robert De Niro. You, um, Yeah, actually, uh, I used to do um, a thing called Tattoo Gazette. First one was made with Ari Rusimov. The rest ones I made. And they were kind of what maybe what one would call nowadays a fanzine. And issue four had a... <clears throat> Some pictures of a guy called Spider. He was one of the Satan Center nomads. He was you know, lived in Tompkins Square Park during the homeless crisis and that whole period of time. And he had some uh, tattoos that were made in Sing Sing. And I used to also sell the Tattoo Gazette in a place on, uh, I think it was 6th Street, uh, 6th Avenue and 11th Street. And I think that's probably where they got the, uh, the Gazette. I didn't realize that they used it as an inspiration for the uh, Max Caddy in Cape Fear, but... All of a sudden, there was a uh, Scorsese retrospective in, at the uh, Queens Museum of Moving Images. And somebody called me and said, hey, your work's in there. So there was actually very little ephemera. And there was one case that had a picture. And there was, uh, you know, both pages of the, ta of the tattoo uh, 
for the Tattoo Gazette. One page had the prison tattoo machine, and the other one had uh, uh, Spider's Tattoo. And nice. it said uh, collection of Robert De Niro, Robert De Niro Archive, uh, Austin, Texas, I believe. And um, so it was part of his collection. So somehow, and it said there it was an inspiration for Max Caddy. Otherwise, I would have never known. So that was wonderful. That was cool. Those tattoos were creepy. <laughs> the character was well played. That's a, that was a good pick. You chose wisely. I did. And also, um, I used to do the cards for the Tattoo Society. And I used to do these black and white kind of tribal type tattoos, uh, drawings. And it was really interesting because in those days, people hated it. They hated it. And it was like, what is this stuff? But I was the president, so I didn't care. I just did them anyway. And uh, now there's a lot of uh, sort of imitations of them or, or kind of taking tribal tattooing and Im incorporating other images and designs. And it's very much like my uh, early Tattoo Gazette cards or Tattoo Society cards. But it was kind of fun that, um, that people hated them because it's kind of was my art and I'm going to make it. And, uh, you know, we're all here. And yeah, I think so that was the, it was all right. the grassroots uh, of the art. Like it was the yeah. like, like Gigi Allen's tattoos, which we spoke about earlier, a, a little bit yeah. of hands on handmade. Yeah, it had that kind of look. Like uh, I like Gigi Allen's tattoos a lot. I videotaped his last show. I, yeah. When he first got out of jail, I videotaped one of his shows, I think Asbury Park. But he had really, for me, interesting tattoos. And, you know, tattooing now is becoming so sophisticated and so, like, perfect uh, portraits and things like that. I like kind of the edge. Uh, I'm kind of going back to the old edge of, like, you know, what you see in some of the squatter tattoos and GGs yes. and like that because it brings back some of the the power that tattooing had. Now it's sort of so clean and so perfect and so nice that it kind of lost some of the magic. But, I mean, not to, you know, it's it's what everybody wants and it's, you know, it's personal choice and I'm okay with any of it. I mean, you know, it's just I, tattoos. I tattooed actress Danny Wang and she had asked for a tattoo that was like that, that style. It said <laughs> Freebird. It looked rough. It looked like a prison tattoo and that's what she right. wanted. It looked tough. Yep. It was gritty. It had some soul. Well, I have to say, um, with prison tattoos, there were a lot of uh, really highly sophisticated, extremely well done prison tattoos. I mean, that's where true. really the whole black and gray uh, yes. thing came out of with like uh, Freddie Negretti and the people coming out of prison and kind of East L.A. and that. And then Jack Rudy picked up on that, the single needle thing. And so there's really been some, you know, prison tattoos that are really, really high quality. Intricate and beautiful, with Absolutely. The, especially with the tools they had at hand. Um, that's true, 100%. Yes, definitely. Uh, do you, your favorite artists on you, your tattoo artists, uh, want to talk about that? Uh, I don't really have a favorite tattoo artist. Um, you know, I've had tattoos by, you know, Sean Vasquez, Mike Bellamy, Hori uh, uh, Zakura. Um, uh, How was Japan? That was Wild Style that took you out there? Or? No, I got the Japan in uh, New York City. I got one by Hori Say. Nice. And he wanted to come to America, and he, um, this was, uh, you know, when I was doing the tattoo uh, convention, I was an organizer for that. Yes. And uh, Hori Say wanted to come to America, so he came to me, and uh, so, you know, I found him a wife. Oh, could, that's good. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, he got, he got married, and um, the girl was kind of looking for sex, and he wasn't, so they had little, some trials and tribulations there. <laughs> But they were both into pot, and she dealt that. So it, um, the, that, that part worked out. There's a marriage made in heaven. Uh, in the clouds, let's yes. say. In the clouds. Yes. Now, you have a, a soulmate, I would say, right? Elsa Renza. Uh, Elsa Renza. Yeah, we first hooked up in 1972. 
I'd have to say, unfortunately, we got married recently because of the whole gay thing and all of that. It made it sort of mandatory. Mandatory. I wasn't really into joining that part of the system. But, yeah, I hear you. You know, I love Elsa dearly, and we've been together since 72, and we're very loyal to each other and all of that. And That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't feel I really needed a piece of paper, but I got the paper anyway, and that's fine because now if I die, we can have a will and yeah. share it, and she can have anything I got or whatever. Let's speak about the gallery where you guys uh, reside, 161. Uh, yeah, I have uh, the um, tat, uh, museum, yeah, Clayton Gallery and the Tattoo and the yeah, Outlaw Museum, and Outlaw Art Museum, Outlaw Art yes. Museum. Excellent. Have a very interesting show up right now. It's uh, done in it is the toughest guy I know, and I've known a lot of tough guys. Yeah. And this it's tough guy is L.E.S. Uh, LES and other places. And he was born in 1948. Like when you read the the uh, hardcore books, like John Joseph, uh, uh, Roger. Uh, Harley Flanagan and you know not with Harley but generally you got the group home and the foster homes and all of that well Jerry went through um, so he was born in 1948 left on a church doorstep and he had no ears and he was small because he was kind of like a sort of a runt so his mother dumped him off on a church doorstep and he went through seven uh, group homes and two orphanages wow. now the first or, the orphanages was um one was for uh, disturbed children, and the other one was for uh, crippled children. And then when he started going to school, he went to a school when, in, when he was five for the um, deaf and dumb, because they used to call them dumb in those days. Yeah. So he had a really hardcore beginning. And, uh, you know, he was turning into a, you know, a difficult child and all of that, because he lived in a completely isolated world. You know, he couldn't talk, he couldn't hear, people would be pulling at him, he didn't know why or didn't know what. Eventually, he was uh, picked up by this, uh, you know, uh, foster parents, and they wanted a difficult child. And they got Jerry, and you know, they're they kind of a privileged family, and kids grew up to be doctors and like that. And so Jerry, um, so he was getting into trouble and things, and then the father said to him one day, "This is junior high school, which is difficult for everybody." And he said, "You know, either you're going to join the family, or I'm taking you back." And so at that point, Jerry found love, and so he felt like he joined the family. And then he became an Eagle Scout, and then he was. Uh, took art classes. He was the first deaf person to graduate from Carnegie Mellon University, awesome. first deaf person to teach at Atlanta College of Art. And about 10 years ago, he kind of really came to realize, he used to do these prints, a lot of prints. I've shown him over the years. I love Jerry. And it's like, you know, he used to have sort of like desolation, Lower East Side, wood blocks and prints and stuff like that. And then uh, now, about 10 years ago, he feels it's his job to be the bridge between the hearing and the non-hearing world. Nice. And so, yeah, he's an incredible, um, an incredible artist, an incredible in, uh, individual. And I kind of see him kind of like the Helen Keller of the uh, only of the deaf and, uh, you know, not being able to now he can speak. And, you know, when you were a kid, the other thing is in the 50s, they were very afraid of, of deaf people because deaf, you'd see deaf person, a deaf person in the, in the supermarket or something. They'd be going because they couldn't hear and they couldn't yeah. talk and they're just making sounds. So people get freaked out. So, and also in high school, he was a flyweight wrestler. So, nice. <laughs> so he was tough mentally. That was my point, and to survive all of that. And then he came to New York in 1983, a little deaf guy, white. White's important because he lived in, on 7th Street between C and D, which is mostly Hispanic. At that time, the neighborhood was extreme drugs. All the people that wrote about the Lower East Side... Like, let's say the hardcore scene, Harley, Roger, John Joseph. It's always about how tough it was and how impossible it was to be in that area. And Avenue D was death and Avenue C. So went, but he lived down there, and he still lives there. And he was an independent business person, and he survived by making signs. 
So another way to look at gentrification that exists now in the Lower East Side is to follow his signs because you see a lot of businesses that you'll remember, but all of a sudden they're gone. So because the Lower East Side is certainly being flushed of everything that was there from before. So that's Jerry Pagan. Anyway, I only show by appointment only, but it's a show that's worth seeing. Awesome. And then, I mean, I, I thought of sign painting even. It was, I became a tattoo artist because painting on a, on a canvas wasn't cutting it. And the canvas came to me. It was skin, and the skin paid me to put my art on it, and tattoos saved me. It was... Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. One is, is that sign painting used to be one of the avenues into tattooing because tattooing... Yeah used to be pretty much of a folk art and certainly a working class art. And so, uh, but as you got into the 80s, especially like with sort of beginning with, you know, Ed Hardy was always pushing the whole uh, point of view of tattooing should be high art. And eventually he got it to that place. And a lot of that's because of Ed Hardy. But uh, so uh, in starting the Tattoo Society, it was almost impossible to learn to tattoo in New York at that time because there were so few people that did tattoos and the few that were left in the city that did obviously were not interested in sharing. That's part of the history of tattooing. So the Tattoo Society was really kind of a neutral place. You know, I wasn't into favorites. I didn't, uh, wasn't doing tattoos myself, so I wasn't in competition with anybody. So that's what made it really work, and it was always important to be an open and friendly society. But once you were kind of belonged to the society, I mean, nobody really dicked with you. Even though if you were an independent at that nice. time and it wasn't for the society, you opened up somewhere, you know, you could have a problem. But really, with the Tattoo Society, nobody had problems. So what that would was happen, important. What would happen at the meetings, at the Tattoo Society meetings? Well, a lot of things. One thing we used to have was competitions, and the point with competitions was it was... You see, at that point, we were talking about art and tattoos, and you see, at that period of time, the 80s, there were a lot of people, that were, like you had mentioned, kind of came out of art school, and they couldn't really make a, a living doing yes. painting. It was extremely difficult. I mean, there was probably 100,000 artists in New York City at that period of time. So the way around that was to try to get tattooing, and so a lot of them became tattoo artists. And so a lot of people went to SVA and to, to art school and all of that. And it's where a lot of that whole wave that came out of, uh, you know, the uh, early 90s in New York City came out of the Tattoo Society. And out of that came, like, Emma, a lot of women, actually. Emma from Porcupine. Uh, Lori started uh, uh, New York Adorned. Uh, uh, Michelle was Daredevil. Uh, Sean Vasquez came out of there. Uh, some of the first exposure that Paul Booth got was coming to the Tattoo Society because that's the Tattoo Society. It was a great place for people to uh, get press because... Uh, there Build was, the community. Uh, definitely the community. And, um, you know, the magazines didn't really have that many places to draw from. You know, there weren't that many conventions or whatever. So coming to the Tattoo Society, they would meet all the tattoo artists, and that kind of opened up all kinds of avenues for all kinds of people. You guys built respect for the art. Definitely. It was... Uh, yeah, that was... Know. I hope so. I mean, I, I really think that was really important for me. Actually, it's like uh, Debbie Allman, who used to work at Outlaw Biker, and then she eventually went over to uh, uh, Pink Coyote. It was a publishing company under McVitie, and they were starting a tattoo magazine. And so uh, Debbie came to me and said, I need an editor. And... Um, so I introduced her to Jonathan Shaw because at that period of time, nice. uh, I knew Jonathan. I used to hang out with him a lot to watch him tattoo Johnny Depp and a lot of other people. Awesome. And so I made that introduction, and then he became the editor. He doesn't tell that story, but I got Deb telling that story. Tell as us well. that story. You watched him tattoo Johnny. Let's let's. You want to go there? Let's, yeah, that's fine. I mean, you know, Johnny Depp was actually very good friends with Jonathan. Jonathan actually is kind of an oddball within the tattoo world. And yeah. at the tattoo uh, society, we used to have sort of two structures of people. You had kind of like the art student type, 
Then you had like the just old time traditional tattoo artists like Tattoo L. I got Bernie uh, Mueller, the Guinness Book of World Records for the most individual tattoos. And awesome. we took that over from Shotzi Gorman. Also, a couple other people that are very under the radar, like uh, David Hayes. His mother was Mary Sisler. She was the one that got Duchamp's the Museum of Modern Art and that in the 50s. She was a very important patron. And uh, also, uh, Daphne Hellman used to come and play the harp. Nice. I, <laughs> so, do, I read that, and Evan yeah. told me about that. Yeah, she had been a debutante. She was beautiful when she was young. She was a very sort of interesting person. We got along very well. And her grandfather started a bank on Wall Street. So, you know, she came from wealth and whatever, but she was very underground with that. But she would come to the Tattoo Society and play the harp. So we had kind of this whole cross-section of uh, society that was there. And it was, it was fabulous because everybody, it was friendly. That's one of the most yeah. important things. It was friendly. It was a community. Yeah, and I, I like the fact, you said uh, earlier, you had to get the okay from the society to have a shop. And these were No, 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 I, I didn't say that. Oh, okay. What I'm saying is, when you were part of the community, there was yeah. a form of protection that went with the community. Oh, yeah, 10 four. And a lot oh, of sorry. other people outside, you know, there were a few other people, there were a couple of people that would really sort of could bang on somebody if they weren't. Yeah, it was tough. It was a tough... It was a tough place for you to But this, creating a community ended all of that. And the other thing is, I used to have Michael Wilson as my doorman. Uh, Michael Wilson was a Coney Island Illustrated man. He was very important. Excellent. A friend of mine, uh, Ethan Hill, is now doing a documentary on uh, Michael Wilson. That's something to watch out for. Ethan Hill is a very, very interesting guy from San Francisco that's documented a lot of this stuff now. And so... You know, we had a real cross-section. We had Eek the Geek uh, used to come there and be part of it. Uh, we used to with the tattoo uh, contest. We had Joe Coleman as a judge, Grandpa Munster as a judge. Yes, awesome. David Hayes as a judge. We had a real wide cross-section of people as judges. So it was really kind of blending all parts of society together because I documented a lot of Lower East Side, and so I had familiarity with many different corners. Uh, there was a movie came out of it uh, by Ari Rusimov. It was a sort of black, dark narrative. And it was called Shadows in the City. And in that Shadows in the City had people like Pulsating Paula, who was a photographer. Paula really needs to be uh, sort of examined. Paula really, okay. in terms of the 1% world, she's really photographed a lot of that, like 70s and 80s. Excellent. Yeah, she's really important. Off the radar, she used to be a stripper and stuff like that. But in terms of her photography, she's absolutely great. We must multitask in New York. You must multitask in New York. Yes. She's from Jersey, but yeah, she came in all the time. Uh, Ephraim Gonzalez, who's now getting a lot of press with his photography. He did a lot of the uh, sort of underground sex shows. He did, uh, you know, the, the West Village and the, under the, the, the trannies on the street and all of that. A lot of really amazing photographs. So he's finally getting his recognition. A lot of people were really substantial that came out of the Tattoo Society. It really changed the, uh, the whole system in a lot of ways. It gave many opportunities to many people. And, and thank you, because it did bring respect to it, and it made it easier for everyone to get tattooed, I think. Yeah, and also it gave a lot of people a career that got them into business. And, you know, from going to not being able to sell art to now all of a sudden maybe making 250 bucks an hour and up. Exactly. I mean, it kicked people up to the level of lawyers and things. So, yes, it saved yeah. a lot of us. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of legalization... We used to have big meetings. The biggest meeting we ever had it was at the Pyramid Club. We had Sally Jesse Raphael. Her show was coming there. So all of a sudden, it was madness. We probably had 600 people there all together, outside and inside and whatever. But the day after it was legalized, it just ended. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, six people showed up. It changed Boom. a lot of stuff. 
Well, everybody became each other's competition, so it lost that friendly, you know, community aspect. Right, and it, I mean, this at that time too, everything was behind the scenes. It was kind of hidden, and you had to get a pass to get in, right? Kind of. Yeah, it was all about uh, finding the gatekeeper who could open the door to yes. let you in. So, and so it had a respect level that was very, you know. Yeah, a lot of people came out of there, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of them will acknowledge it. I mean, Sean Vasquez will acknowledge that it changed his life. Wes Wood will acknowledge that. And he eventually got into a multi-million dollar uh, supply business that's worldwide. And his whole kickoff was the Tattoo Society. So it really did open the door. Like, you know, Lori got New York adorned, which is tattooing and, uh, you know, piercing and henna and all of that. Uh, Michelle from Daredevil. You know, she always talks about the history of tattooing in New York. She does the early days. Doesn't talk about the Tattoo Society, but that's all right. We know. (laughs) (laughs) I got the proof. I always photograph things, so I got the proof. Should we go there? Why she didn't? Uh, acknowledge or we well, I don't know probably else. a personality thing you know I okay. mean if it hadn't been for tattooing I mean I remember when the Natural History Museum of Art was doing the tattoo show what had happened is that they were going to do a show in Somalia this was about 1997 1996 something like that probably 97 and then that's when the marine was dragged behind the jeep so they oh, yeah. nixed the Somali thing so they needed to fill it in with a show and so um, Ann Fitzgerald and a couple other people at the museum Peggy, I can't remember her last name now. So they came up with the tattoo uh, show. And so I remember when Michelle was being uh, interviewed, she was talking about herself of being a kind of a mousy young girl and whatever. And tattooing really gave her kind of like the, and once she got tattooed, it gave her the presence of being like a, a chick, if you like, or a woman of presence. So it changed her life really mentally and in a lot of ways. And... Um, the thing, yeah, so that was really kind of interesting because when I used to do the Tattoo Gazette, there were a couple of places that I tried to, you know, because I used to do uh, anthologies, which means collections of a lot of other people writing for it. But in the Gazette, so I thought, well, I'm going to try the Natural History Museum because, uh, you know, they're in the Natural History Museum. This would be the 80s. And I contacted them, and they said, no, nothing with tattoos. So that was like, click, mm. I tried the Kinsey Institute, and they said we have no connection to tattooing whatsoever, which turned out to be a lie because Phil Sparrow from Chicago, uh, his collection ended up there in the Kinsey Museum. Kinsey, one of the places he used to go was like tattoo partners, like like Phil Sparrow's place, because there was always that sort of, you know, intimacy. Uh, Phil Sparrow was gay, and he had a whole sex scene around him, and so there were a lot of reasons and, and people that were connected through Kinsey, the first Kinsey, the Explorer, uh, that connected tattooing, sex, and the underground. So, you know, that whole thing with the Kinsey Institute was nonsense, too. Uh, going to, um, one thing I do, let's go back to Kinsey Institute in one second. I just want to mention Radio Free Brooklyn donations, uh, radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. And I'd also like to say a little mention here for, um, let's see, after more than a year of dreaming, researching, experimenting, late-night conference calls, and early Saturday morning meetings, the Me team is happy and proud to present to you the Me bottle. This double-insulated, reusable stainless steel bottle disinfects water in a 60-second cycle, utilizing UVC LED technology, and is 99.99% effective against E. coli. A single charge via micro-USB lasts up to 30 days, and the bright LED display lets you know when water is ready to drink. Join us in bringing clean water to all. 
All right, let's. Uh, that's at mebile.com. So <laughs> back to you there. Sorry about yeah, that, Clayton. I no did problem. have to pop that in hey, there, man. I gotta get gotta some survive. reminders out there. <laughs> no problem. I want to keep talking, so let's get back to what we were talking right. about. Let's go back. Let's go right back where we were. I just had to make sure I got that in there. All right. So that was the Kinsey Institute, and you know. I also tried to get uh, the new museum. Now, it's really interesting because if you follow Martha uh, Tucker, she was really the one that was very avant-garde. She used to work at the Whitney, didn't really find that worked all that well for her, and she started the new museum. Now, Martha uh, Tucker was actually extremely avant-garde, and in the like early 80s in that, she was getting tattooed with... Um, it'll take me a second, but um, anyway, the point is, is that she was deeply involved with tattooing. And what happened is Ruth Martin... Okay. So Ruth Martin was a tattoo artist in that. And so uh, Marcia Tucker had tattoos. And the new museum, when I would contact them, and this is a few years ago, now they're probably more open because there's probably young people there with tattoos. And for them, it was absolutely tattoo. You cannot call us about this. We don't, we don't talk about it. We know nothing about what you're talking about. <laughs> but in 1976, Martha uh, Tucker wrote the introduction to Spiderweb's book, Heavily Tattooed Men and Women. Awesome. And um, which brings me to Spiderweb. Spiderweb really is kind of like... A really a genius from those early days. I mean, Ed is really important, and there's no question about that, and he really did integrate fine art and tattooing, and he really raised it to a higher level. And Spider was always kind of more off the radar because he was a little bit more uh, quirky, if you like, outsider. Uh, he was from SVA and went to Mexico for a master's degree and whatever. He's very educated. But he did, like, conceptual tattoos in, like, the early 70s, and he did, like, the Thousand X's, which was putting... Um, one X on a thousand people and one big X made out of a thousand little X's on one person. And that, um, you know, it wasn't really until 2000 or something came around that conceptual tattoos were being really looked at. I remember there was a, somebody had contacted me one time because they were talking about it. They were going to do a thing when the millennial turned, when the millennium turned from, uh, you know, the 19th, 20th century to 21st century. Yes, yeah. There was somebody every hour on the hour was going to tattoo all the way around the globe so that they nice. had, you know, that whole thing. But Spider was doing that stuff in the 70s. And, you know, Spider did, like, uh, pizza tattoos in the early 70s. He did, like, brush strokes. He did a lot of things that nobody else had gotten to. So I think he was the most, one of the most radical tattoo artists in the 20th century. And he made machines. And he made all kinds yeah. of machines. Machines made out of everything. They you know? looked awesome. I've seen yeah. some of them. At West had a lot of his machines. And yeah. And beautiful work. Pieces of um, material from the 9-11 uh, World Trade Center um, after it was bombed. Uh, he used to make them out of, you know... Uh, I got him to Wiles down on Tattoo Messy, and he was tattooing somebody there with a rose. But he had done that early. You know, the the... He did the Dracula tattoo, you know, the two bite marks on the neck, yeah, also very yeah. early. Yeah, before it was ever done by anybody else. Well, uh, it wasn't really done until the, the later 90s. The scene was in LES, correct? Well, there was a goth scene that incorporated yes. the vampire scene. And so in the late 90s, years later, you started getting people with the two bite marks on the neck. But Spider yeah. did that way back. Way back. So he's like about as avant-garde as one can ever hope to get. And he's still overlooked, and it's really kind of... And he's a genius, you know, like a lot of those guys were. Yes, they, yes, and it, that's what this show is hopefully, you know, bring some noise back again and keep it going, man. You guys did so much good for us. Now guys come into the shop with no tattoos and want to get a face tattoo or a hand tattoo right away, and that's <sighs> insane. It's like earn your tattoos and uh, start with the hidden ones and then move to the... 
more obvious spots, but it's a crazy new dawn for face tattoos. <laughs> well, certainly in the past, it was really with, you know, traditionally a tattoo artist would never tattoo a hand or a face unless they knew you were serious about tattoos. Because first of all, one of the things that happens, a kid gets all kinds of tattoos, and then he wakes up a couple of years later, and it's like, oh my God, I can't get a job, I can't get this, I can't get that. So the old school always wanted to make sure you had a lot of tattoos before you went to that level because you have to know what tattoos are, how they feel, what kind of re reaction you get from them. And now you get kids, they'll take off their shirt and they'll have no tattoos except for their hands and their face and their neck <laughs> yeah, will be completely tattooed. Yeah, total opposite of what it used to be. The opposite. Was, yeah. And I think it's a mistake because, yeah. it's, because all of a sudden the kid gets into trouble or something happens and he regrets it. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you go through a lot of different phases. And it's really not until you're a lot of people until they're in their 30s that they sort of stabilize and become who they are. So, right, like this six nine kid with his face tattoos. Yes, exactly. And uh, this is uh, so exactly. if he goes under witness protection, yeah, he better have uh, ink that disappears after two years. <laughs> uh, that and also, what other tattoos does he have? That, those might be the only ink tattoos he has. Yeah, it could I mean, I don't possibly... know, but it could be. And if it is, it's a bad. It's you know, it's just a sad situation what were your feelings on it before it was legal because uh, you were then also involved so i mean that was just a freer time i mean what what do you think it was better you said it was better well better is a funny word but it was certainly interesting and um it was freer in a lot of ways you know because you had the community so you had community support it was more like you know people were interacting with each other and then, and then it became each person was in competition with each other, and it was sort of like then they weren't really talking in the same way. So in terms of community and freedom and people getting along and sharing ideas, you know, in a lot of ways it's not hard to put in a tattoo. So if you don't know how to tattoo, you can pick up a machine and give somebody a tattoo. Right. So at that period of time, you'd have people like Wes, for example, who was very technically oriented. So he would learn about, uh, you know, the autoclave. He would learn about... Uh, you know, all the sort of health things that people needed to know. Uh, he, he would learn about, you know, he knows how to make machines and how to fix machines. And so teaching those kids how to run their machines and that. Wes was really kind of a point person. So within this club, you had all of these different parts. So you had the part where Jonathan Shaw went off and created International Tattoo, or was part of creating, part of, he was the first editor of International Tattoo. And that was under uh, Pink Coyote. But Def, uh, Debbie Allman hooked that up. And then you had, you know, just the people of sharing, and you had people like Michael Wilson coming there, who was very heavily tattooed. When he first came to New York, he wanted to get, you know, some more face tattoos and that, and he came to me, and uh, you know, eventually Mike Bacchetti did his uh, head, and there was a guy called... Uh, Fine Line, yeah. Fine Line Mike, yes. And uh, Michael said those were some of the most painful tattoos that he had ever gotten. Yeah, rattled the brain, from what well, I hear. Uh, I, I have no head tattoos, but when people get them, they say the head's rattled. Yeah, that's, you know, I've heard some, some people say it didn't really bother them, and, but for Michael, he said it was extreme. Yes. Other people, you know, so that was uh, that. was that. But so you had the whole collection of people, and you had like the David Hayes's. Uh, you had David Hayes came from sort of one of those wealthy families where you can't find out anything about him. And so there was, uh, I got the uh, call from the Demonil uh, Foundation, and they were trying to find David Hayes because David Hayes had been sort of instrumental. David Hayes was like an intellectual, and he'd gone to Yale. He spent his whole life learning at different institutions and things. But anyway, he had been an inspiration to uh, Jasper Johnson in the early days with philosophy. And so they were trying to find out about David Hayes, and they couldn't find him. There was one reference 
in a New Yorker magazine. And in that New Yorker magazine, it talks about David was part of the Tattoo Society and had my name there. So they were able to track me down to try to find out about David. So it made a lot of connections for a lot of people. I think in the end, I hope it was a very positive thing for just about everybody. Um, you know, everybody used to come. The whole legalization thing was interesting. It had to happen. I mean, it, it got banned in 61. I am trying to dig deeper into the supposed love triangle and the sordid affair that actually caused the band. Um, but uh, well, there's different, there's different uh, sort of tales about it. Some people said it was hepatitis. Other people said it was because a city councilwoman and her son got tattooed underage and went to Coney Island and talked to the people and they told her to, you know, F off or whatever. And so the first case was really taken on by... Um, you know, Coney Island, Freddie, and Philadelphia, Eddie, and they lost it. And then they were given a couple of years to appeal it, but they agreed during the appeal not to ta for, for anybody to tattoo in between that. So the Moskowitzes left. A lot of people left. And then in 1963, it was officially over because they, uh, they lost the appeal. And so Wes and I were sort of spearheading this thing, and um, it's a long, complicated story. I won't get into it. I'm working on this book that, <laughs> yeah, bring that, up. that tells these stories. I'll just finish this part first. So we had this, we found out about this meeting that was happening in this union hall. So we went there and it was kind of like, you know, it was old school tattoos. Yeah. Old school guys, a lot of guys in there were really kind of like, and there, some of them were, were really opposed to it because their business was illegal. They, they weren't dealing with taxes. It was all cash business. So certain people for many reasons wanted to stay illegal. But Giuliani was coming into power at that period of time and it was very easy to close anybody down. It wasn't a criminal offense. It was a medical misdemeanor, but a medical misdemeanor, like a restaurant now, you'll see, they can close you down. Yes. So you're not going to jail, but they could close you down. So that was the fear, and people knew it. And the advantage of once it was legal is that, you know, you could hire people, you could get health care, you could have an official business, you could rent it, you could open on the street, and you could compete with California, because California was always sort of like on the leading edge in a lot of ways. New York was underground, and you paid a big price for that. Yeah, 36-year prohibition. 36 years prohibition. So during the legalization process, um, so we had this meeting in the union hall, and Coney Island, Freddie was out. You know, it was kind of funny. Wes and I went out to, to uh, Freddie's place in Coney Island. I mean, we got this whole tough guy thing. And, you guys are scumbags. We're going to mop the floor. You know, go through all this crap. So, <laughs> and the guy, Todd, he wouldn't let me record it. But Todd <laughs> recorded the whole thing. And then I kept trying to get a copy of this from Todd. He wouldn't give it to me. But anyway, at this meeting, you know, Freddie gets up there and talked about how we didn't know crap about tattooing and blah, blah, blah. And so this whole, you know, everybody's there. Tony Polito, Angelo from the Bronx, you know, obviously you have Freddie, all the young tattoo artists. Everybody's there, including the people that are trying to knock us out. <laughs> and so at the end, Steve Bonji got up and then he just sort of gave a really, uh, you know, strong talk about how we supported the business so we supported a lot of artists we had really contributed a lot to the community roseland ballroom well that was later and so then we passed we got we got the the green light and i think it was a good thing because you know between wes and i because how we got catherine freed our city council person i was had been a very political activist at that time and so i knew catherine freed she knew who i was was that around the time of when did you do captured uh, well, Captured was later, but I did okay. a videotape in 1988 that became known as the Tompkins Square Park Police Riot. Yes. And that's in a whole other tangent, going to jail, blah, 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 videotaping cops. Anyway, the, uh, the whole business with the um, legalization is, is that I think if Freddie and the, and the other people had taken it over, they wouldn't have got it passed. 
because working with Wes, who's very smart and very yeah. diligent. Wes is very business oriented. Very business. He definitely and, got, got my ducks in a row with Wes. Absolutely. And technical. So, yes. you know, he knew all the ins and outs. We, we would go meet with the health department and, and Wes could answer any question that they had to ask. Yes. Also, they want to bring up a point that the, um, it's very important. The health commissioner in New York at that time, because they, we had to go to City Hall, we talked to City Hall. It was a, that's an interesting experience. But uh, the health commissioner said there had been no whole time that he was uh, health commissioner and looking back through the records, he had no connection between hepatitis and tattooing. That's what I had read, yeah. Yeah, so that's a very imp important point. Okay. So that connection really didn't exist. And when you looked at the old school guys, they didn't wear gloves, they didn't really clean in between. Yeah, it was different then. Yeah, but I mean, it wasn't hepatitis. Right, yeah. I mean, and it so, wasn't... you know, you'd have to be a real pig to, to pass or to pass out In hepatitis. that sense, too, good thing for Wes and you guys and the, everything, like the, the, yes, sterilization. Yeah, Wes was really instrumental in the whole thing. Now, now what are you working on now? You got a current project, and then you did some, well, you got a number of projects. The Joker? I have a, a major archive, a photo, video of the Lower East Side. I have really hundreds of thousands of pictures of different aspects of the Lower East Side. That's why Bourdain came to me yes. when he did his last show in the Lower East Side Sad because he was looking for these. awesome. I saw that picture. Yeah, and his last show, you can actually find it on the Internet. Uh, and he came to me because uh, he was looking for a heroin bag. When he was a kid, he used to come to the Lower East Side and do heroin. Yeah. Oh, that's what, yeah. That's what the neighborhood was. Yeah. And, and still, like, I mean, it's still around. I mean, it's still. Yeah, it's much more underground now. It's much more high class. It's yeah. much more off the corners and streets. I mean, now it's yeah. more of a um, high-end, you know, uh, delivery business. But, yeah, it's still obviously there. Nothing has changed. Yep. And it kills a lot of the the movie stars, actors, oh, sad God. drug. You could have a wall the size of Vietnam Wall with the number yes. of people that have OD'd and died. I know. It's, it's huge. It's tragic. Well, we're getting close to the end of our show here. I'm okay. uh, at Radio Free Brooklyn. I'd like to thank Clayton Patterson, Tom Tenney for helping out today. Um, Can I thank, add in one little thing? Yes, please do. Okay, one thing that was really important to me is that um, there was just a book that was really uh, changed the history of, uh, of uh, body culture in, in America, and that was uh, Modern Primitives, put awesome. out by research. And there was a little line in there that said uh, Clayton Patterson, Tattoo Society of New York. And so this guy, Johann Uhr in Austria, he contacted me. And so from that, I, I took the famous tattoo artist to Austria. So that included like Sean Vasquez. Eventually I got Sean Vasquez, Gil Monte, uh, Jack Rudy. I, I shared a booth with Steve Bonji. He showed us photographs and I showed videotapes and, and uh, you know, photographs and like that. And so it really introduced American culture, tattoo culture to Europe because we toured a lot with uh, between uh, Austria and Germany. And so I would hook these people up and like Sean eventually... Uh, he stayed on the tour, eventually met a lot of people. He integrated himself into uh, the Austrian tattoo scene. He eventually, uh, you know, became big in Austria, married an um, Austrian woman, has a kid from Austria. So that whole trip really changed his life. You know, got Mike Bellamy over there, a lot of artists. And then by the time it got into the uh, uh, later 70s, 90s, and I was, uh, you know, worked with a tattoo uh, convention, which the first year was Steve Bonji, Butch Garcia, and Wes Wood. They were the owners, and I was the organizer. And then after the first year, it was uh, Steve Bonji and Butch Garcia were the owners, and I was the organizer. And Wes stayed on as a, as, a, as a venue person, and he did all the medical stuff and everything else. So he was definitely still heavily involved. 
but he, you know, dropped to the aspect of ownership. And so um, I learned about, uh, you know, part of my job was organizing in that, and, you know, especially working with Stephen Butch. So I became familiar with people in Japan. So I hooked up Japanese tattoo artists that went to, uh, that I was able to get to Wild Style as well. Let's talk about Wild Style, because I actually, I'm looking at the clock, and we'll keep going until we can't, and I'll probably make this a two-part all right, that's fine. Show if you don't mind, Clayton. No, you I'm good. Go? You know, you turn oh. me on, I don't stop. I'm like the <laughs> <Thank> Energizer Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> this is all good stuff, man. It's juicy, good stuff. Wild style. Let's go to that. What happened? Well, How'd called, you get in it? It's called Wild Style and Tattoo Messe. So this guy Johan Uer got in contact with me, and so I went over there. We became very good friends. Uh, this, this show is still going on. It's going to be on like in the end of October. Next week after that, it's going to like Lintz and Badishal. And so I walked into the show and I thought, wow, this show is incredible. And if you, there's a, a, a site called No Art. It's capital N-O explanation mark small A-R-T. And you can go on that site and you can look under books under my name. And if you go to the Wild Style and Tattoo Messe, you can actually go through the whole, that whole book and see it. And so that's from like 1995 and 1996. And they were early. They did like hot rods, motorcycles, North American Indians. They did uh, uh, beautiful women dancers from Hungary. They had a Mr. Chippendale. Culture, uh, don't take it away. <laughs> yeah, they, it was really anything that was connected to and interesting to youth culture. So it was huge and, and very groundbreaking. It's still groundbreaking to this, to this year. It hasn't gotten a lot of coverage in the mainstream tattoo world. One of the reasons why is because it was so kind of like varied and, and, and different. And so it was like just, you know, tattoo conventions were just tattoo conventions. But the one thing Wildstyle did, because it was so diverse and had so many other things, and Johan always did it in high-end venues. So people would come into the show that would never go to a tattoo convention. So you might have doctors and sort of more people of, uh, of the, you know, upper class and the upper middle class and all that would come to a tattoo convention. Or it was never a tattoo convention, but would come to Wildstyle. And then they would get to see tattooing as they're looking through all the other stuff. And over the years... You know, I got a number of those uh, performers as well, Hardy Newman, uh, Indio. Some of those people ended up staying in Austria and getting married, like Indio, and like that changed his life as well. I had Semester Hyman from Guar. I had the Pain Proof Rubber Girls. So I brought over a lot of talent. So it had like sideshow people. It had just a wide variety that now sort of shows up at conventions. Now you start getting, you know, probably the freak stuff that maybe wasn't there before. You know, like we introduced the whole Coney Island aspect. So it's Joe Coleman and uh, Indian Larry over uh, there, they, they were involved? Uh, no, I never got them to, uh, to Austria or there, but I, you know, obviously I knew uh, Indian Larry really well, and I knew Joe Coleman uh, very well, and uh, they used to come to the Tattoo Society. I mean, awesome. Indian Larry was definitely a pretty regular visitor. Joe Coleman would come at specialized times when he was very close with Jonathan Shaw. He got tattooed by Jonathan Shaw. Nice. Yeah, some of that's in uh, Shadows in the City, the movie. So a lot of this tattoo uh, New York culture is still very underground. Yes. I uh, had Huck Spaulding there, and everybody, you know, at that time, Huck Spaulding was obviously hated because he was the guy that sold machines and that. And so, I got to tell you, though, tattooing A to Z saved me. It I saved a lot book. of people. It saved a lot of people. He <laughs> always a, kept a few things out, though. Yeah, but, I mean, that helped. It was a, it helped ta a lot. Tattooing A to Z, Huck Spaulding. It's like that book I got from uh, when I worked with Westwood and... It definitely helped me, you know, I, it saved me. <laughs>
That's like a, that's like an apprenticeship in a book a bit. You still need an apprenticeship, though. <laughs> but you see, he used to advertise in the back of Outlaw Biker. And actually, even before that, in, um, uh, you know, what's up, um, uh, Mechanics America, American Mechanics. What was that uh, magazine called? But I think it was Diesel used to advertise in there. We could buy tattoo machines and flash yeah. and things like that, Diesel. And uh, so it was always available one way or another. But people like Jack Rudy always used to sort of go on these rants and outlaw biker about scratchers and all this is bad for the business and whatever. And that's at a time. You know, the one thing with the Tattoo Society and Ed Hardy and opening up that whole world, and now maybe people will say there's too much tattooing and too you know, but it's, it's really just reached a high level of confidence. It's saturated. It's, yeah. it's, there's a lot. But it's just pushed everything up. It's made it much more mainstream. It's made it much more accessible, acceptable. Probably they say like a third of the people under 35 are tattooed. Yeah. So it's really, it's been a, in, a, in so many ways a good thing because it's given people jobs, professions, uh, The class, machine changed, uh, went from everything. the tattoo machine now to the stylus pen. Yeah. A lot quieter, uh, like a rotary. It's pretty yeah. interesting. I mean, the machine didn't really evolve. That went back to the Bowery. The tattoo machine was... Uh, it was uh, the electric pen. Samuel O'Reilly, yeah. Thomas Edison's electric pen. And, and then it went Sam back O'Reilly. to that before that. That's right. right? And, yeah. and then it, Sam O'Reilly reinvented it. Uh, he did, and he turned it into the tattoo machine. And so the thing that you had with that is is that by the time you start getting into the 90s and that, and I also worked with Wes a little bit on this, trying it out and experimenting. But Wes was, was dealing, working with a psychiatrist, a friend of his, and he was sort of thinking that, after years of being there listening to all the time, <laughs> yeah. that maybe just a totally silent tattoo machine. So Wes was actually working on a, a, a silent, uh, soundless tattoo machine, which I think he basically, you know, kind of perfected. But the whole patent thing was so difficult that he didn't really ever get a patent and it right. would cost too much money. Patents are insanely overpriced. <laughs> yeah, and there's different people will put in things that are patent that aren't maybe even don't really work that well, but they will have the patent on that and West kind of perfected it. And um you know so that and yeah, machines now are really a lot quieter. You used to walk into a tattoo and you could uh, parlor, you could smell the the green soap, right. Uh, the alcohol right. and the uh and hear the <laughs> yes. So it was part of the culture. And um you know, a lot of that's disappeared now. Yeah, now and, now the music got a lot louder and the machines got quieter. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. And, I'm, you know, I knew an old school guy that was going to come to New York to work in New York, and he was dealing with this shop. And, you know, he still talked old school kind of stuff. And the people in the shop got so freaked out that said, you can't come here. We're going to sue the owner. Oh, wow. Yeah, it got really crazy. And he's like a regular guy that started in New York in the late 90s and, um, you know, had the whole thing going on. But that message, so all of a sudden he really, oh, man, I can't deal with that. So yeah. <laughs> forget it. the whole culture has changed so much that it's, it's just now a business and a high-end business. Whereas at one time it was like an art form. It was underground. It was, uh, you know, it had its own magic because it was very sort of separate and individual and outsider. And it's lost the outsider part. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, it's good, too. I mean, there's people out there that are really great, amazing tattoos. You know, the culture is really sort of alive and well. And even like with, with 69 or what's his name, uh, Tech 9 or Tech 69, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody's talking about his tattooed face. Right. What does he do with that? I don't know. I mean, they talk about him ratting people out. They talk about how he's a crew. He belongs to a gang, blah, blah, blah. But they don't really get into it. And it's interesting that it, 
I mean, let's say in the 90s, the fact that his face was tattooed like that, it would be like people would be screaming out bloody murder right. about that. They don't even mention it, really. No, it's kind of looked up. Like, uh, Lil Wayne came out kind of prior to him with his face tatted up, and it kind of, I'd say he broke the waves with the face tattoos, kind of. Um, I mean, it doesn't really freak people out in the same way it used to. No. D- Diane uh that lead singer, he has some, you know, pretty primitive looking art that and on his face too um yeah it's it's different when when i see young kids come into the shop that i work at i i gotta tell them sometimes to think about it i told a girl not to get a hand tattoo the other day because she's only got two tattoos i don't think the second one should probably be right on top of the hand but you gotta try and steer them away from it and earn it a little bit I agree with that. How long have you been in the business for now? Since 2005. I started tattooing at whatever tattoo on 6th Avenue, Avenue of Americas. Okay. And it would have been through Westwood's uh, Jilly Bean. She was through Disgraceland. Okay. Yeah. uh, She was the piercer, and she got me over there. Josh Loeb's got me a job um, through Helen Kim. And they would buy supplies at Unimax. And I sold supplies at Unimax thanks to Wes. Yeah. What kind of supplies did you sell? I worked in the store up in the warehouse. Oh, okay. Yep, with Masaki and Wes direct. We worked upstairs, bring oh. stuff downstairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how I met Wes, too, and that was important. And I'd see all the Flash. Wes had such a beautiful collection of Flash. It was just amazing. Uh, so much beautiful work. Should have all be in a museum, and I hope it reached it, you know? Yeah, I hope so. And, and, uh, you saw the inks being made and all of that? Yes, the inks being made upstairs, the needles being made upstairs, right. his partner Charlie upstairs, excellent guy. Yeah, I was uh, being immersed in it like that got me into it, you know, it put me in the right place. Uh, if it wasn't for Wes, I don't know, you know, I didn't, I don't know where I would have be. Uh, maybe wouldn't be tattooing. Yeah, he, without question, changed a lot of people's lives. Yeah. And it, as far as uh, as far as you and Elsa, she tattooed a yeah, little she bit. She tattooed for a while, and uh, we used to make uh, Clayton caps. Uh, we did that for a while. We really yes. changed the history of the baseball cap. We were first people to put a label on the outside to brand a baseball cap. It got in L and GQ, correct? Uh, yeah, one of the two best baseball caps made in America, according to Richard Merkel. Uh, he was uh, from GQ magazine. But we would uh, took the image off the front and moved it around the baseball cap, put some on, sometimes under the peak, uh, you know, we did theme casts for individuals. Every time Matt Dillon made him a movie, we made him a hat. And they still haven't really caught up to that level of cap making. But Allison now doesn't make them anymore and whatever. So that for me is somewhat tragic. But uh, that's the way it is. Yeah, we, we, yeah, I hear you. I made a lot of T-shirts once. <laughs> yeah, and T-shirt, you know, that's something that really should be looked at. The, the, the modern or the Whitney or something is the whole history of tattoo uh, of uh, T-shirts. T-shirts, right? Yeah. Uh, back to Ed Big Daddy Roth. and Absolutely, back to Ed Big Daddy Roth and probably before that. I don't really right. know the history of it that well. Ed Hardy. Ed Hardy. And within the tattoo world, like Crazy Ace was one of the first people that did the multicolored uh, T-shirts. T-shirts. Yeah, they didn't have any images on them up until that point. Yeah, and also the multicolored ones. Like, all of a sudden, you had a full color. He got them printed in Chicago somewhere. And he was really one of the first people that made the, t- the tattoo videotapes and sold them, uh, like uh, Color People of San Diego and like that. Ace uh, was really way ahead of the curve. He used to come to the Tattoo Society. One time he tattooed when we had a space at Chase. He tattooed at the tattoo site when it was illegal so 
West, uh, Ace was really a forward-thinking person. And I mentioned before, I'm working on this book, which I've been working on for a long time. It's really stupid. But um, there are a few, if anybody's interested in writing about tattooing and tattoo history, there's a few articles I could still get written. Uh, if they don't happen, it's not that important. But uh, I need a little bit more editing to get it done. So if anybody's interested in independent projects, like building a tattoo uh, history book, this is an anthology. But I have some really amazing, amazing history about, like, uh, uh, Reverend R.O. Tyler and how he really was influential and people like Klaus Oldenburg and that really early on. And he was like uh, a friend of mine, Keith Patchell. He went to this printed matter show and he saw all this paper everywhere. It was like nobody ever, ever looked past this. And he realized that this was an orchestration done on paper, all the scratch marks. And it turned out by his studying and, the, and the, you know, he was part of Judson Church and Judson Church is where Jim Dine came out of and Oldenburg and all of those people. And uh, he might be this, but the same par as um, the uh, that really sort of a minimalist uh, uh, John Cage. Yes. So, you know, Tyler, a tattoo artist, but he was too extreme and too eccentric for people to be accepted. But he also used to be neighbors and, and close friends with, like, uh, Tom DeVita. And Tom DeVita, you know, this is another thing about Ed Hardy. Ed Hardy was really the one that's always sort of uh, uh, pushed Tom DeVita. And Tom DeVita now is becoming recognized as really a genius within the tattoo world because he did, like Spider, he did so many things first. I mean, he did black roses. He did tattoos without outline. He would just take, you know, or, or put clouds around certain tattoos and just go out with the swirls and things. And everybody at the time he was doing this, he started in 61, the day tattoo became illegal. But everybody had was inside the line. It was like coloring books. Yeah, yeah. And so they'd have the seven needle outline in New York and then they'd fill in the color in, inside and like that. And that, uh, uh, Ed, uh, uh, Tom sort of broke all these rules. And this was way before anybody else was doing anything like that. And so really, uh, Hardy pushing him and sort of, a, you know, giving him a showcase uh, sort of now has sort of planted DeVita into a high place within the tattoo world. And one of the people he broke into tattooing was a guy called Nick Boobash. Now, Nick is really an interesting person. I have a long article on Nick. I have a lot of articles on Tom DeVito. I have a lot of articles about all of these different people that I need to get this damn book done by. But, you know, like, it, it shows there's a level of sophistication within tattooing that overlaps. Like, if you look at Nick Bubash, his father was involved with the uh, polio. He, uh, there was this uh, University of Pittsburgh needed a Jew, so they got this guy, Jonas Salk. And Jonas Salk came there, and he was, uh, you know, this is a you know, needed uh, students to work on his project. And one of the people that worked on the project was Nick's uh, father. And Nick's father had isolated some sort of, you know, whatever it is that people isolate in those little Petri jars, <laughs> one of the strains of polio, so actually made his own contribution to that. Now, it was interesting, it's a very interesting point about sharing. Because when Jonas Salk, once he got recognized as a cure for polio in the 50s, which became very important, he became the sole guy that did it. Now, the science community knows that nobody does it on their own. So the reason he didn't get a Nobel Prize for that, because he didn't acknowledge the people that worked with him. He didn't acknowledge a team. So the Nobel Prize knows that, hey, man, you didn't do that thing on your own. It's, it was a joint thing. And so, they, uh, so he didn't get a Nobel Prize. And if he had shared, he probably would have. One of the people he would have shared with was Nick Bubash. And Nick's mother was a singer of some merit and he had you know an uncle that had been a prodigy violin player and that and he came to new york and eventually hooked up with davida and became a tattoo artist so really uh, boobash was the only one that he apprenticed 
But there's another big lie in the world of tattooing, and that's uh, uh, Mike Malone and Kate Hildebrand. Now, when you, you follow the history of tattooing, it's always uh, Mike Malone got started with Sailor Jerry, Sailor Jerry, Sailor Jerry, uh, Kate, Sailor Jerry, Sailor Jerry. The reality is, is that Mike had worked as a lighting guy at the, uh, I think it was the Fillmore East in New York, and he was also a photo student. And walking around photographing, he was photographing like grass and cracks and sidewalks and whatever. And he walked, went by this place between C and D on 4th Street, and there was this guy with all these tattoos. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Tom had his neck tattooed by Jack Rudy, all these skulls that go around. Yeah. And so uh, that turned him on to the whole idea of tattooing. And then eventually from that, he got involved in the first tattoo uh, show at the Folk Art Museum in 1971 with Bert Hemphill. And so... Tom allowed him to watch him for a week and talk to him about tattoos and tattooing. And that was sort of like, one would say, the apprenticeship before going to uh, um, a meeting um, Sailor Jerry. And it's the guy that opens the door. And the guy that opened the door for him, for Malone, was DeVito. Okay. I mean, and for Kate, because Kate and Malone were living together at that time. So that changed their lives. And maybe the fuller, broader picture. And you also have to remember that time that Tom was... Tom used to draw flash like on grape uh, box crates. Yeah. Like on the end, the wooden ends of the crates. The, and he would do, that was what his flash was drawn on. So it was very sort of like crude and, you know, done on... You know, so you walk into a shop and it's got all these sort of wooden plaques around there's flash. So people thought he was a little nutty and whatever, a little bit too funky to be tattooed. Did he use acetate then still, the acetate? Uh, he was using the acetate with the, yeah. with the graphite. Okay. But he did things, for example, like people would have, and he's still the only guy I know that does this. So he would go over top with the acetate and he would have one of, let's say, tribal tattoos. He used to take sort of tattoo imagery off of manhole covers and that. So he would take those and would make the acetate stents and would put it over top of a tattoo that already existed. So he would go over and under like a collage and make that into a, a, a tattoo. So in that new tattoo, you also had old faded colors from the past. So yeah. you had like the soft pastel from the past, which everybody wants to cover everything, and he would allow those things to come through. So that was a whole different way of thinking about tattooing. But he was so kind of like folk artsy that people didn't want to have that acknowledgement. But thank God for Ed Hardy, because Hardy always sort of saved him and pushed him through. And, uh, and now he's finally, years later, now Tom died a couple of years ago, but he's finally being acknowledged as the great artist that he really was, and the contribution really that he made. And like Kings Avenue gave some shows for Tom at, uh, at Kings Avenue Tattoo and the Bowery, and so he would come and, you know, uh, a lot of old school uh, uh, respected him. Uh, you know, Tony Polito, Angelo, because they were all part of almost a club or something in the past because there weren't that many shops in and around. How many were there about, like maybe five prominent, you know? In the uh, by the time after tattooing was illegal, I mean, at that time. You know, it's really interesting because <clears throat> history is always about digging up the past and finding it, and it always takes a lot of sort of digging to get there. Yeah. And even as you got into the 80s, people always sort of mentioned the same people, maybe Mike McCabe, Mike McCady. Huggy Bear. Huggy Bear, of course, and like that. But if you talk to Wes, who sold uh, equipment, there was probably 80 people. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the number is now. Right, at least 80 at working, but five shops that people... Recognized. Yeah, and respected. And respected. And so really, but there was a lot of people that were like much more underground. Right. 
And so, you know, it's always hard to get to know the how many really, but the ones that you know about. Like Sparrow occasionally in the early 80s now would come to New York, and early 70s really, I guess, because uh, Hardy would come to New York. He wasn't really part of the first folk art museum show. That was 71. I think he first started coming in 72. Um, Diane Hansen is also extremely important. Uh, she was one of the first people to get tattoos into a magazine, which at that time would be Outlaw Biker. Nice. Yes, you know, like let's say you would have uh, Easy Rider that would have uh, tattooed bikers or bikers, but she was the first person to actually concentrate on just a tattoo. Before that, it was just guys with tattoos that were bikers, and it was sort of thought of as part of the image. Yeah. So she would take that, isolate it, and start to show it, which kind of opened up a whole other door. And did they kind of talk about the story behind why the person got the ink, or it just focused on the artwork? Uh, at that time, you know, you have to remember that the culture was really sort of like, this was outlaw biker, and at that yeah. time, people don't really remember, but biker culture was kind of like the tattoo culture. Yes. So, you know, um, you know uh, outlaw biker was also was owned by uh, Casey Exton, um, Excellent, Harvey, and he used to, uh, you know, have like a lot of porno ads in it. He used to take like women's uh, panties, and they would all sit around the office and and put, put uh, you know, like sardine smell on it or something. They'd sell it through the mail. People would buy these <laughs> used panties. Do to survive. <laughs> yes, and uh, you know, dildos and everything. But he also had the tattoo part, which uh, and eventually turned into Tattoo Review. And then uh, Deb Allman worked there, and she was really important to, you know, escalating the level of, uh, of the uh, tattoo uh, quality in magazines. And, you know, I was involved in this one court case about, a, you know, a street gang that was an murder. I won't get into the whole details. But anyway, so I was uh, up on the stand. He was at, talking about Outlaw uh, Biker because I got them over to the street gang's uh, Satan Center Nomads, which was run by Cochise. He was yes. the president. I've seen pictures that you took, I think, of Cochise. Yeah, Definitely. I documented that a lot. And so the district attorney has asked me, well, is that with, because Casey was like that whole sex thing. So he'd have like uh, Sally Sickum Silly as an author and a thing. You know, all this really sort of goofy stuff. So it was kind of weird being up on that, uh, you know, in the court and said, well, have you ever heard of Sally Sickum Silly? I said, yeah, I know that is okay. But anyway, that didn't uh, see that day coming. <laughs> no. So we got through that. But yeah, the Satan Center Nomads, that was the last street gang to wear colors on the Lower East Side. Yeah. And that was Cochise, and I got Cochise to uh, Sean Vasquez. And then Sean Vasquez did a lot of tattoos on him. Nice. You know, Sinners Forever, Forever Sinner, and, you know, that whole kind of thing. And um, actually, I really sort of pushed uh, um, Cochise into, uh, into art. Excellent. And he had done 24 years altogether for, like, violence. He wasn't, he's not criminally minded, but he's violence minded. And if you drink Jack Daniels, he's stupid. Yes. But uh, so pushing him into art, and his last bit was uh, 18 years for trying to, you know, attempted murder on two people. And uh, that, um, you know, he learned a lot about street gangs in jail because that was one of his inspirations. You know, he really cleaned up his act. And so we did a book called uh, Street Gangs of the Lower East Side, Coach uh, Jose Cuelas and myself, Clayton Batterson. And that was... Um, was really interesting, but but art really saved his life. Another person I've been closely in contact with and sort of trying to push him forward because I think he's great is uh, um, Shane Elmholm, and he did a, 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 a one of the typical Panthers on my leg, and Shane I'm really impressed with because he kind of went from just you know he did he was a ponytail bandit, and he did eight years in jail and all of that, and then after getting out of jail he became a tattoo artist, and in doing that. Yeah, I was very good friends with Bob Roberts and those, and you know that sort of group of people. 
But he's very talented as a musician, as an artist, as a spokesperson. He's a great storyteller. So I was kind of helpful in pushing him out into the public and making him realize that he's really got a powerful message. He's really sort of an amazing artist. And he has a lot to say. And I think that helped give him confidence that's pushed him out there. And then now he's been like on the tattoo tour that went through Europe. Uh, he just came back working with Huggy Bear. Awesome. Yeah. And he's... Uh, He's an amazing storyteller and a very good friend, and I really appreciate uh, Shane. And like I say, he tattooed a big panther on my leg. And most of my tattoos you can't see. And that was another fun thing with me. Like Michelle used to tell people, oh, he doesn't have any tattoos. And it was great. I, you, know, you know, I could take that kind of crap. And like I say, all my tattoos are basically mostly hidden. And I'm good with that. If somebody wants to do that stuff, I mean, I'm fine. I don't care. I only have one tattoo. Well, I have one that I got when I was 15 in my little bottom of my arm here. And then I have another inside with just a puzzle. And, and that was done by Enigma and nice. uh, Cat. Awesome. And so that was that. That's the one that Cat shows. Cat Helen No, Cat uh, uh, we used to be partners with. Uh, she had the, the cat tattoos on oh, her face. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, got you. Uh, Enigma and Cat. Yes, Enigma. So they were part of Wild Style. Actually, Johan's had a lot of really amazing um, talent, uh, tattoo talent at Wild Style. He's had like uh, Zomni Boy. And there's a magazine coming out, TTT, uh, which should be out at the end of November. It's got Zomni Boy on the cover. And he's, I mean, he was really an interesting person. And, and he was part of Wild Style. And uh, he was uh, uh, also, uh, you know, in, in Germany, he was like Mr. Fashion or something. I forget exactly at this point what he was. But uh, he was very a remarkable performer. And he's had the Enigma, uh, uh, Lucky Rich Diamond. And Lucky Rich Diamond had really beautiful tattoos. They were really incredible. But he was heavily tattooed. His face. His, I remember him talking about one time. So he tattooed himself totally black because he wanted to be the Guinness Book of World Records. Wow. So he kind of obliterated all those really incredible tattoos to tattoo himself just black. And sometimes if you just see him from the side or something, he looks like a black guy. Can he go out in the sun? Does that burn? I mean. I don't know. It's an would, interesting question. Yeah, it must heat you up a little bit more. I, but he's a performer there, and, in, and he works at Wildstyle also as a tattoo artist, so he does tattoos. And so, well, you know, I got one tattoo from Enigma and Cat. And um, other really great artists that, that were at the uh, Tattoo and Wildstyle show. There's a guy called Max in Bedicial. He did a number of my tattoos. Max, uh, he was at the first tattoo, uh, at the first Wildstyle and Tattoo Messe show. And uh, Max is kind of an insecure guy, so he didn't know if he could tattoo or not tattoo. I got a family. I'm working in a, in a print shop. I don't know if I could leave it. Yeah, but I actually worked... Yeah, and actually working with the uh, Wildstyle pushed him into being really a tattoo artist. That's awesome. And he had tattooed uh, Johan's whole back. And he's really a force in Austria. So Wildstyle really helped him. You know, Wildstyle, when the first tour, a lot of those people, like a Siri from Austria, another guy called Nutty from uh, Vienna, uh, Siri was Vienna. They got really their push because if you go every weekend to almost sort of a convention-like situation and you're working with a few kind of, and you're all young people working together, Sean Vasquez, that really pushes you forward. So Wildstyle really opened the door for so many tattoo artists to really learn and, uh, under those kind of conditions and tattoo a lot and make a lot of money and get really good. And so Max was one of those people. And Max now is one of the better tattoo artists in all of Austria. And he's taught a lot of people and... Uh, other people that have worked there, I mean, you know, I met uh, uh, Brad uh, Bako, Bako, B-A-K-O, and he's in uh, Australia, and he's an incredible tattoo artist, and he was there. 
And, you know, getting back to the Tattoo Society, you also used to have people go through there like uh, uh, Bernie Luther when he came to New York, came to the Tattoo Society because he's hanging out with Sean and them. Uh, you also had, um, what's his name that does all those sort of really abstract uh, tattoos early on? Uh, Guy Atkinson Guy, came to yeah. Tattoo Action. Uh, what about Hanky Panky? Hanky Panky, no. I, uh, he was never there at the Tattoo uh, Society. Okay. But, he, you know, I met him in New York when he was tattooing and things. And he used to uh, tattoo out of the Gramercy Park Hotel and like that. Awesome. So Hanky would come through town. And uh, Shane would tattoo a Smith Street in, uh, in Brooklyn. Do you know who tattooed the back of Gigi Allen's head? I don't. Um, I, I think the Lower uh, East Side, I think. But Katie did some of uh, uh, Gigi Allen's tattoos. Okay. Now, which ones did he? And some of Gigi Allen's tattoos looked like they were hand-poked and done like yes, that. So definitely. it could be... I know Merle got a bunch of tattoos from Mike uh, Bicati. Okay. So Merle Mike definitely Feinlein. has, yeah, Mike Feinlein uh, tattoo. So a lot of those black and white that he has were done by them, but by Bicati. Awesome. Huggy Bear used to do mostly just uh, uh, black tattoos, you know, black outline, black line tattoos. He Not, pretty much took over Brooklyn. It was <laughs> Huggy Bear tattooed everybody, huh? Huggy Bear tattooed a lot of people. He definitely, and he's unknown. Yeah. And I think he eventually went to Florida and died. But, yeah, Huggy Bear is somebody who really should be uh, acknowledged in yes. a bigger way than what he was. I think so, too. Yeah. And uh, Ephraim Gonzalez knew Huggy and maybe had photographed him. But I don't think he ever really uh, um, documented Huggy. I don't know anybody that's really documented Huggy, which is really kind of unfortunate. I tried to find people that know about him to write about him, but I haven't been able to at this point. Okay. And a number of people, like uh, uh, Spider, a lot of people he broke in, like Dragon and that. They used yeah. to tattoo out of Coney Island. Spider right. started doing that again, kind of bringing back the tradition to Coney Island. And um, It's all a big community, and I just do want to say thanks to my Radio Free Brooklyn community. Uh, donate to us, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. Thanks for tuning in to Tattoo You with me and my guest, Clayton Patterson. Uh, we're going to continue here with a little more. We're going to keep moving on. Uh, Keep going, Clayton. This is excellent. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, New York really has a large history that's never really been investigated. You know, bits and pieces have. I mean, it's... There's that's so what this show is for. We're going to go deeper, and uh, I'll help you with the book. Yeah, thank you. I and, would and love to. I definitely need help. I definitely need help. So anybody that's interested in writing, uh, editing, I want to finish it now, but I have a lot of really incredible history that needs to be saved, told, and gotten out it there. It does need to be. It really documented. does. Documented. It's important. And I got a friend in... Uh, Philly, Angel Kiez, he opened up his own shop, but he's got a lot of respect for the old school tattoo artists. He's got he's collected acetate from Sailor Jerry. He met with Kate Helen Brandt. Yeah, he's she was met, selling those. Yeah, and he's met with a lot of the artists. Uh, he's I think Spider. Uh, I have to speak with him too on the show, um, but I hope you to meet him. Yeah, Ethan Hill would be a very good person to talk to too, cause okay. he, because you know I've turned him on to a lot of people and. You know, because he came here, he was only doing uh, Michael Wilson, but I think he started realizing that there's a number of other people. I mean, there was a guy called Michael Nomad in the West Village that was extremely critical and important, nobody knows about. And there's all these different, you know, all these new hotshots and all these people that are in New York, so many of them don't know anything about the history of New York. And, right. I mean, part of that's our fault because the history is really hidden, and that's why I kind of have to have this book done. I mean, Mike McCabe did, like, the 50s interviews and like that. And that's a very sort of uh, important book and uh, very valuable now. But there's so much untold stories. And, you know, I have to get this damn book done because I have so much of this content that's really sort of outside of what most people know. 
Just so, give me an assignment, brother. Okay, well, <laughs> okay. I'm into it. I'm into okay. it. I need somebody to write about uh, Marsha Tucker, and I can turn okay. I can turn a lot of people onto where it is. You know, there's a whole history of gay tattooing, which is really underground, and almost nobody knows about. And it's interesting because nobody will talk about. Yeah, and why not? I mean, what's I don't the, know why not. It doesn't make sense to me because they 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 have this thing about it's our secret, and the, and the reality is most people don't know. But like Cliff Raven was probably the first really out tattoo artist, and to think that he was like that in the '60s and into the '70s is really pretty extreme. Because yeah, definitely, it, was, it wasn't that open. It was, it was there was not the respect that it gets now. Well, it was a very macho world. Yeah. So he had a lot of balls to come out. I mean, there are people like Phil Sparrow in that that uh, was obviously gay, but he was very underground and he wrote gay porno and things like that. But nobody. But that wasn't sort of part of his whole sort of... Uh, did, um, did they get tattoos as code so each other knew? Or is that what we're talking well, about? Well, I think too? part of it's like that. I mean, I, I heard that uh, that uh, Raven had like a, a handkerchief uh, display. And they, within the gay community, there was different handkerchiefs wore, you know, in the back pocket. They would One color would symbolize one thing. Let's say uh, urine, for example. Maybe one would have like a, a, a yellow handkerchief and they would put it in one, one pocket so maybe that would indicate he's the guy doing it and the other pocket would indicate the guy was looking for it. Wow. So you had those kind of symbols. And that hasn't really been ever really talked about in any kind of way. And actually there used to be a thing called the Click Club and there was a couple of people for that. There was a woman called, I think it was her name, Sharon, Stephanie, something like that. She worked at uh, New York Adorn, Brooklyn. But uh, she was part of the Click Club, won't talk about it, but she... Uh, really worked with Bill Salmon, so it isn't like she wasn't helped by other people. Yeah. Uh, there was a woman called Julian. She, Julia, she won't talk about it. She really learned for a lot from Mike uh, um, uh, Malone in L.A. and Black oh, and Gray. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, yeah, awesome people. What's Mike's shop is uh, Lucky, what, what is Mike's uh, Shamrock. Shop? Shamrock tattoo. Shamrock in L.A. In LA. Yeah, and uh, Bill Salmon diamond uh, tattoo in San Francisco. I mean, really important giants. You'd think one would want to talk about that. But somehow there's this stigma about it's ours or theirs or whatever. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. Because it is an important part of tattooing. Definitely. You know, like it or not. I'm not gay and I don't, you know, whatever. It's, uh, and it's not about sex. So it's not about the sex thing. It's about lifestyle and culture. Well, that's what's great about tattoos is I work every day. I get every culture to come in. I get of every course. race, every sexual orientation. Right. And you learn to respect everybody. And that's what the whole world needs. It's like, we got, we got to bring everybody in and we got to protect each other because we're all we got up against a world that wants to go to war all the time. And exactly. It's, uh, you know, we're there for each other. We're the only family we got. We are a tattoo family. It's Absolutely. And the other thing is, like with the tattoo convention or even a tattoo society, one thing that's always impressed me is that it's about tattoos. Yes. So you might have some woman who's 60, really overweight, you know, would never be seen in public with her shirt off or whatever. Yeah. And here she is showing off her tattoos. Right. So it gives a lot of people a sense of pride in who they are because of the tattoo. Exactly. So maybe physically on the outside, they're maybe in a position where they're not used to being admired. But all of a sudden, they have really beautiful tattoos. So now they have something on them that they're really proud to show off. And that was one of the real beautiful things I found, like, at the tattoo convention, was just the, the cross-section of people. Like you say, black people, white people, Spanish yes. people, Chinese people, everybody. Right. It's, not, it's like a world community. And it's only about the tattoo. Yes. It exactly. isn't about how much do you weigh, how good do you look, who's your beauty partner. Right. And you see, that's another factor that started. The tattoo Society first started off called Tabasni, Tattoo and Body Art Society. Now, the thing with that is there was a guy called Roger Kaufman who really did it first. And he used to advertise in the back of the Village Voice. Now, 
he really couldn't keep it going. So Ari and I took it over. Now, at that time, it was very, people don't realize how conservative tattooing is. And they said, the people that were coming up said, look, you know, we will support you guys for starting this, but we don't want anything other than tattoos. Okay, that's fine by me. That's what we're interested in. So they said, we don't want hairdressers. We don't want beauty salons. We don't want body pay. We don't want any of this stuff. Well, speed ahead to, um, God, what year? Probably in the 2000s, like Friday Jones. She opened up the first tattoo parlor within a really high-end beauty salon. Nice. So that kind of connection has really been made. I think Mario Barth had something at the, in a beauty salon or something in, San, in Las Vegas. So that connection has been erased. So a lot of those little lines that used to be there are no longer there. Yeah, I worked at a barbershop tattoo and bar- in Brooklyn in Hypnotic. Well, barbershops and tattooing used Different to... Different than beauties, but... Yeah, because yeah. in the early days, like on the Bowery, a lot of there was a, the barber school was there, and a lot of the tattoo artists were in the... When it, shared a shop with tat, with yeah. uh, with uh, haircutters, uh, right. barbers. But that's machismo. Yeah, okay. You know, even I think it's a regional Ars, uh, marsh painting of like the Moskowitz shop, I think it's got like a barber pole and a tattoo. Yeah, yeah, yep. The one person who knows a lot about that is Marvin Moskowitz. Marvin okay, Ma- Moskowitz awesome. is a very, you should put him on your show. Marvin okay. is a very good uh, tattoo historian. He comes out of the Moskowitz family. And the Moskowitz Excellent. brothers were the Bowery boys. They have, yes. But just like the gay thing, there's always been Jews in tattoos. Yes, like the old shop in in Israel, 500-year-old shop, where really? they put the, oh, they do the, like a block print. Yeah, 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 with the Crusades. Yeah, 500-year-old block yeah. print, and then they tattoo the stamp. But actually, I was, and I did this before Ed Hardy, I did a, a Jewish history, a three-volume Jewish history anthology of Jews in the Lower East Side, people's history, and like we did... Um, uh, a guy called Ed Portnoy, he's a PhD, he knows a lot about, uh, you know, Yiddish culture and all of that. And he wrote about uh, Lou the Jew, uh, yes, the tattoo artist. And yes. later, Ed came out with a book on Lou the Jew, but we did it first, really. So we're more obscure, obscure, and he's more sort of frontline. But we love Ed, and he's very important. But yeah, we did Lou the Jew, and he was like a Lower East Side uh, tattoo artist. Uh, did, uh, did the first flash. And the Moskowitz brothers were Jews. You know, and their father before them and all of that. So there's always been, you know, with the Jewish culture at one time, like the Bowery, like back way in the older days. See, everybody thinks Puerto Ricans, you know, because once you get to the Lower East Side, it's criminals and all. Jews had the same thing. I mean, make no mistake. When it was Jewish ghetto, it was everything that a ghetto has. Yeah, you know, like Bugsy Siegel <laughs> would burn down your push card if you didn't pay him a vig for being yeah. there and whatever. So they used to have, like, on the Italian side is where the Jewish prostitutes were. The Italian prostitutes were on the Jewish side. So that meant that you would never go see your aunt or your cousin or your whatever because <laughs> they were on the other side of the street, so you wouldn't run into each other. Smart move. Smart move. But prostitution and at that time was a way of life for a lot of people. Not a lot, but people that made a living through prostitution. And people don't think of Jews and prostitutes and all that. But that's, that, that was really part of the culture. And there's always been a, a relationship between Jews and uh, tattoos. So all of these taboos had a tattoo culture that went with it whether it be gays or whether it be blacks or whether it be Hispanics or whatever, um, you know, there's always been this sort of relationship with tattoos. Tattoos are sort of just part of mankind. Yes, since the, I think since the beginning, since they dropped us off here, whatever the case yeah. may be, how we got here. I mean, it goes to Atsi, the mummy, with his tattoos, right. but it goes far back beyond Atsi because somebody who had tattoos had to tattoo Atsi. I think it was Otzi. There's a person by the name of uh, um, Willie Robinson. 
and he uh, has a traveling museum. And he also traveled with Wildstyle for a while. And he had a, an Otzi figure that he used to display. The mummy and whatever. That's you awesome. know, and, Yeah, like, more like a carnival thing. <coughs> but that, was, uh, that was, was that. And I think he was actually Austrian where he was oh. discovered and found. It's interesting. His, the tattoos are on um, either injury spots and locations or um, acupuncture marks. There were also and, acupuncture yes. marks. There was also used as protection. Healing, shamans. Spirit job. shamans. And also, you know, like especially like when you watch the Samoan uh, thing, you know, they're down, the whole dancing and all of that. I mean, it's all about, you know, putting fear into people. Yes. And they would have heavily tattooed faces, the warriors, and that whole just tattoo thing would be so overwhelming and scary. Fighting is a big part of fighting is psychological. You know, if you get the psychological, I don't care how big the guy is, if you can get the psychological edge on the guy, you got him. Scare him with the look. Scare him with the look. Lars you know? Krutek did a book on that. Lars Krutek, the uh, hmm. archaeologist of tattoos. Um, I think he's called the Tattoo Hunter. Really? Yeah, uh, Kalinga Tattoos. Um, also, the connection, a lot of artists were female artists back in the day, uh, in the tribes and such. Hmm. It was often given to the female. Really? That's for, uh, from what I've researched. So, wow. And what's the name of that book again? Uh, he has one called Klingit Tattoo, hmm. and then he's got, he had a series called The Tattoo Hunter. Wow. I, I have some means of contact with him. That's very interesting. I, you should meet him. Yeah, I, I definitely like, would. It's, um, yeah. In fact... Let me get a hold of them about this in your book. Yeah, I think it'd be fabulous. Cause and I need help with the book, so i got to get this damn thing done. So I need support. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's not a money-making adventure. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really about Respect saving yeah, history. Saving history. Yeah. And saving our history. If we don't save our own history, who will? Right. we got to document it. After, and the other thing that happens is other people come in later and they start telling things as they thought it was, and it all gets mushed and wrong and whatever. And that's why with these anthologies, I try to get people who are like prime sources, like, you know, Nick Bubash wrote about his own history, which is amazing. Yes. You know, and Keith Patchell wrote, and Keith Patchell, you know, he went to uh, Juilliard. He's uh, got a master's there. He's, uh, you know, he played with Richard Lloyd, uh, the, you know, the guy that was the early punk. Excellent. Was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, uh, he put to help uh, Richard Lloyd to uh, Sweden. Richard Lloyd uh, uh, did Field of Fire. And, uh, you know, uh, Keith has a song that he wrote on that record. And, and he's, um, he, he's the one that wrote about Tyler. So he knows a lot about music and music history. He didn't know anything about tattoos, which doesn't matter, because to incorporate the tattoo part in that is the easier part. But finding out his sort of more secret history is the harder part. And Keith Patchell knows a lot about avant-garde music. So Keith is, uh, is really a keystone in all of this. And it feel, it, it's all connected. The music, the tattoos, the artists, it's all family. Yeah, we're all one. It's all connected. It's all part of it. And, uh, you know, you don't have one without the other. And don't let them shut down the arts, people. And don't let them <laughs> shut down the arts. And keep the art alive. And keep the history alive. And keep doing things. Because keep, some, keep books alive. And keep books alive, absolutely. And keep the knowledge flowing. And there's been so many people that came out of New York. And, like, you know, like whether it be Kate Hildebrand, I mean... I don't understand Kate at all because Kate's always fabricating things, which is stupid because, <laughs> I mean, Kate's history is sterling. I mean, she started off, you know, after leaving New York, she worked with Rudy. She worked with, uh, you know, this is early. Yeah. You know, with uh, Jack Rudy, with uh, 
all those people, you know, and why not talk about that? Because that's really an amazing beginning part of the whole culture, right. the modern culture. Right. You know, this, this How it traveled from, what, here to Hawaii? What was it? it the, I mean, it was like, he, he, Jerry was in Hawaii when she studied with him, right? Uh, that's true. Now, how long were they really together? A week or two? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know either. But, um, and you know, really, that was put together by Hardy. But to be working with those people in L.A. at the very beginning of that period, like when Ed got started, she was there, you know, Jack Rudy, uh, you know, then uh, Freddie Negretti came along. And that's really kind of the beginning of the modern tattoo history. And so she was there with that. So why create this BS about, you know, starting with Jan, go Sailor Jerry? And what, I mean, you know, you got it. You got it. What you got is fine. What you got is great. Let's stay with great. <laughs> Keep it great. Keep people. it great. Because eventually it gets rooted out anyway, and people find the real truth. And then it's, you know, what? why do you need that? I don't know. Now, uh, again, thanks for tuning in to Radio Free Brooklyn. Tattoo you with my guest Clayton Patterson. Clayton, what did you have? You got a little clip up on uh, the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix, right? Yeah, there's a, a movie out called Captured. It's done by Dan Levin, Ben Solomon, edited by Jenner First. And really, that was their first uh, movie. It was really kind of interesting for me how this started. Uh, because I document a lot, I've had a lot of people, you know, in the neighborhood kind of be interested in what I'm doing. So they were kids in high school, and they knew that I had this big archive, and they were interested in it. And so they had, um, um, they wanted to know about Cuban hip-hop. And they wanted, they were making a film in high school. So they went to Cuba, found some hip-hop people, and made a little documentary. Now, at that time, Americans weren't allowed to go to Cuba. So they went to Mexico. These are kids, yeah. high school kids. Went to Cuba, found these hip-hop guys, did a hip-hop. And then they came back, and I saw this documentary. And so I wrote something for Mass Appeal. So I got this little thing in a Mass Appeal. So then they went away to film school, and they came back, and they wanted to make something out of my archive. And they're the first people I really gave them, you know, unlimited access to my archive. And they made this movie called Captured. And it's Dan Levin, Ben Solomon, and Jenner First. And you can get it uh, on, I think, iTunes. You can buy it on Amazon. For those people that are into DVDs, you can get it from me if you ever come by and make an appointment see the Jerry Pagan show. But uh, it really kind of gives, you know, my history and Elsa's history in the Lower East Side and shows you a lot of the trials awesome. and tribulations. It doesn't really cover the tattoo stuff. It doesn't cover a lot of things, but it, the stuff it covers is great. Cool. And so Dan, who's in the business, he's the one that hooked up um, the Warner Brothers, uh, Todd Phillips. I must know who I was because his first movie was Hated G.G. Allen, and I documented G.G. <laughs> yes. Allen. Yeah. And he wanted some of the riot footage because I did this videotape in 1988, became known as Tompkins Square Park Police Riot. Yes. And that kind of changed the history of uh, video, cam uh, video usage and, and documenting because that was the first time that a commercially available handheld camera was ever used in that kind of way and it turned into a huge court case and and that changed is sort of a bl another blip on the uh, history of uh, video making so anyway uh todd phillips wanted some of that so it's some of that's in the joker uh, movie and it's kind of maybe incidental it would be hard for most people to find so really i'm really pleased to be involved and connected to that movie yeah. and the other thing is at the end there's the credits and the credits where the Archive stuff is small. They have like, you know, maybe Warner Brothers or something, another one. And it has uh, captured the movie and awesome. Dan Levin and myself. So, yeah, that was really great. So kind of being an influence or part of uh, uh, Max Caddy and, and Cape Fear is fun yes. for me. I don't know why I always end up with all the scary stuff. <laughs> That's excellent, though. But, but somehow I end up with all these really scary movies if I have any influence on anything. 
So, whoa. I'm really a nice guy. <laughs> Isn't that something? Do people look at us, they see the tattoos and the beards, yeah. and they get cautious of the biker thing or whatever. But usually yeah. those guys are the really stand-up guys and good people that will help you out if you're in need. It's, it's a, I, I see now it's different in the Lower East Side now uh, with the respect level because – a lot of those guys, they knew respect and they got respect and they gave respect. Well, the one thing with the, that underground when you're dealing with the dangerous part is, is that there's so much really sort of truth and who you are connected to it. And in dealing with some of those people, it's like it's not about contract. It's about your word, you know, your handshake. You make a deal, that's what it is. You know, you want to break the deal. You know, it's not, hey, we're going to go to court. I'm going to sue you. Right. It doesn't go that way. So it's really important to be honest, legitimate, and uh, true to your word. You know, honesty and truth and transparency in a way is really important. Yes. And that's the thing. If you're dealing with people that, you know, might be dangerous or whatever, as long as you're, you know, true to what it is you're doing and saying, and you fulfill what it is that you said you were going to do, you're good. Yeah, exactly. If you don't do that, then you got a problem. Exactly. And that problem doesn't involve going to court, at least not in the beginning, you know. Don't start no shit, won't be no shit, but yeah. at the same time, you gotta, sometimes you got to start shit to uh, bring light to what's going on, and you've done that. Well, you've brought tried. light to a lot of subjects, and uh, you've, uh, you've made a platform. You know, you brought people from the Lower East Side into those pictures at the 161, the portal, the door. Yeah, Essex Street. I mean, yeah. I photographed hundreds of people in front of that door. That's awesome. I mean, several thousand by now. And, um, you know, so that, that show, I mean, the, the idea was always to make it a positive experience. Yeah. So I had some, you know, like a lot of, so a lot of kids that were posses and crews and drug dealers on the Lower East Side and that wanted to be in front of the door. Right. Because it became a thing. I used to put 32 pictures in my window that were like three and a half by five. And this is a really important part about the documentation that I did. Anybody could do what I did. Like I had a one-hour place that used to develop my film that, uh, you know, which anybody could go to and anybody could push a button to make a picture. <laughs> Happened to be a very good place, by the way, and they really did an excellent job. And if you go through those negatives now, you can blow them up to any size and it's nice. really, they're really well done. But... Um, so some of them started off in grade one. Now that some of them have grandkids. And a lot of them went off and, you know, some of them ended up to be, you know, good kids, went on and became yeah. teachers or librarians and that. And, you know, a number of them went on and murdered people and whatever. And were like real turned into gangsters and things. But when you get them when they're young and like that, I used to, when they were in front of the door, I'd always try to make them laugh because if I went for the tough guy look, then I'd have beefs. Yeah. One guy would want to be meaner and worse than the other guy. <laughs> yeah. So just before I take the picture, and even if they knew it, I would always say, say pussy. So they would always <laughs> laugh. And then I'd catch them when they were laughing. And if you see them, like I did a book called The Front Door Book that's, you know, got some of them in there. And they look like sweet, innocent kids. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, 12 of those little Puerto Rican kids, uh, even if they're 12 years old, could take down an elephant if you had five yes. or six of them together. I mean, you know, they were like crews. And then family. Then family, yeah. And the graffiti crews. My front door had the tags. So I used to have, like, uh, one part of it, you'd have the tags, and the other part of it would be something else. And so I have this whole huge history, mostly Hispanic, of an inner city. And I probably have the largest collection of inner city kids, people, adults, whatever. You know, I had a few cops, had a few, uh, you know, teachers, a lot of wide cross-section of a lot of different people. And that was really one of my really up points. And it's, you know, one of my greatest blessings was the front door pictures. Yeah, it brought so many people together. 
Multicultural and uh, respect for everybody. Absolutely. We need each other. We need each other. So we got, what, another 10 minutes, 5 minutes? Yeah, about 10 minutes. And uh, Tom, what do you think? 10 minutes about, give or take? How are we doing? We've got about 10 minutes. Yeah, we got another show starting. Yep. Hi, BJ. BJ's here. Okay, well, we'll be finished by that time for sure. So tell me a little bit more about yourself. How did you find out about me? I mean, I've, I've seen you around the village. I remember you uh, seeing you um, maybe nearby Otto Shrunken Head or Hanks. Right. Um, I got a G.G. Allen comic book uh, coming out with Jeff Zornow, and I'm working on that with Merle and, uh, you know, G.G. Allen back from the dead. So wow. I knew you filmed G.G. before he died and passed away that day. It's so what did you have to, to do with that? Were you drawing, illustrating, writing? Yeah. I just... Um, it's a project. Uh, we're going to bring Gigi Allen back from the dead. I think New York misses him. The underground misses him. Right, of course. <laughs> Want to bring danger back to rock and roll. Let's and bring, he did. Yes. And he did. Yes. Who better to come back from the dead? I agree. Uh, get bloated and bigger and destroy. <laughs> There's a guy called uh, Julian Veloche. Yes. V-O-L-O-J. Uh, he's doing an illustrated novel kind of of my life. Actually. And that should be kind of coming out next March. And uh, so Julian is putting that together. Julian had also done uh, the Ghetto Brothers book, uh, history uh, illustrated novel of the Ghetto, Ghetto Brothers, concentrating on Yellow Benji. Uh, the Ghetto Brothers were really instrumental in the 1971 uh, peace conference between uh, you know the, all the Bronx and that getting all the street gangs together. It was kind of the essence of the uh, movie The Warriors. Awesome. The Warriors is really about that whole avenue, 1971, get-together, where all the gangs sort of started coming together, and Julian did that. He's got it translated into six languages, uh, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, English, French, German. So I'm really blessed to have uh, Julian. He also did a book on um, Basquiat, nice. illustrated novel. Excellent. So he's done a number of, he's done about six different illustrated novels. So running into Joe, I've had a lot of blessings in my life. You know, meeting Wes for me, Wes Wood was definitely a blessing. Me too. Uh, you know, uh, being, you know, uh, you know, Julian was definitely a blessing. Um, you know, just being blessed by being in contact with so many people. Right. During the, One person leads to the next and then yeah, you find out we were all there at the right time. Yeah. You know, Steve Bonji was a big blessing with the tattoo convention and Butch Garcia. That was big. Uh, Wes Wood again. Um, just so many people have given me so much that have enriched my life. So I'm really being blessed with the people that I've met because... You know, as an outsider, and you're outside of the mainstream culture, when I first came to New York in 1979, I was making it in Soho, getting one-man uh, shows. I was getting collected by people like Richard Brown Baker. It was a collection. My part ended up at Yale and like that when he died. I hated that world. I hated that whole right, bottom right. thing. Uh, it was like frat boys, Julian Schnabel, all pounding on their chests and smoking big cigars. Better and to come lunches. in from the outside to become an insider. Uh, it was for me. I just, <laughs> I just didn't connect with that world at all. I turned my back on it and moved. First you did night, the right thing. Yeah. You we, made the world that we are a part of. Well, it was very important for me. I still need to be kind of discovered at this point because I have a huge uh, uh, video and photograph archive, which I have to say, say my wife has Alzheimer's, so I kind of have to protect that. I hear you, Clayton. And so, you know, I got all this stuff that's, I, so I need to sort of, you know, help with the book and help with this and help with that. I'm but here whatever. to help. And, uh, I'm I gonna, appreciate Again, that. we'll talk to Lars also. Yeah, I, w I would definitely appreciate that. And, um, you know, there's so much we still have to do, and it's really, you know, it's... Uh, Before we can't, because who knows, you know? Yeah, well, you know, I've, you know, I've 
That's what that Merle book. keeps telling me. He's like, get the comic book done and get it yeah, out there before you can. Get it out there. You know, look, I've, got, I've ripped up both knees taking pictures. My left knee, my righty, my, my yes. left knee is still not that great. It's They're a war a, zone. You're a warrior. Yeah, but teeth knocked out, knocked unconscious. You know, the whole thing, photographing <laughs> on the street, had cameras broken. I've seen the pictures. Yeah, that's part of the culture. But uh, for me, it was an adventure. First night, we moved into our place in, on uh, Essex, 161 Essex. I'm looking out the window. It's how somebody gets shot. Bang. Yeah, it's a yeah. <laughs> like, oh man, what did I do, huh? But yeah. it worked out. It worked out well. One guy, I remember vibes. they were chasing this guy, Tony, because I you know, knew quite a bit about streets because I photographed a lot of people on the street, a lot of the drug dealers and stuff like that. So I'm watching Tony. He's running down the block. Two people work for this guy called Ray, heroin dealers, that sold this uh, heroin called Black. Tony's running away. These little guys are about five foot fivers, and they're shooting at him. Bang, bang, bang. Finally, they get him. So he drops. This is probably mid-80s or something. So he's in the street lying there, and he's turning all white. And so no cops, no albums, nothing. So we put him into a car service because, you know, he's Hispanic. The car service is Dominican. Everybody knows everybody. We get him to uh, Bellevue, get him inside the hospital. We're going there. And it was interesting because he'd been shot in the chest. No, like, blood all over the place. It wasn't like TV. There was just looked like a cigarette burn right in the middle of his chest. So he's like, you know, going white. <clears throat> hurry, Poppy. <clears throat> hurry, Poppy. So got him there, stuck him on a gurney. They whiffed him into the other room to start. They start cutting his clothes. Off. And I got one photograph. Bop! And then doctor, who's this guy? Get him out of here. Hey, so then I got pushed out of there. But that was Tony. So Tony ended up. Um, actually, Tony used to be part of where Satan Sinners had a had a. Oh, we got to go. We do. I, okay. I want to keep no going. Problem. But, no uh, problem. This is another great story about how I really got beat up by the cops and. and 4th Street and Avenue D. But we'll save that for another time. I, I think we're going to have another show with you, Clayton, for sure. And I All appreciate right. you being here. Thank you uh, very we do much. We've got to go into that next time. Thank you, Clayton Patterson. Thank you, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. Yes. Thank you, Tom Tenney, Tattoo You. i got to get out for my next host to get in. I appreciate you guys for tuning in. Thank you. Help us out, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. Help out Clayton Patterson. We'll be here for you. Talking about tattoos. Thank you, New York City and the world. I appreciate it. Thank you. Over and out. Over and out.